0: Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. Let's go, let's go. Well, welcome to our uh, commentary through the book of James, looking particularly focusing on the theme of classless Christianity. I've done two different uh, introductory podcasts, part one and two, and you might want to look back at those. They're about 15, 16 minutes a piece, so it's pretty brief. Um, but I also recommend that if you have time to read the entire epistle of James in the uh, in, in a paraphrase like the living Bible or the message or the good News Bible or something. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. And sometimes through a paraphrase, it's easier to pick up some of the larger themes of books of the Bible. So, in a, especially if you do it in one sitting. But I'm talking about the clash of Christianity and classism, and I um, this is what I think James was writing about in his epistle here. He he confronts this concept of classism both in the church and by the church. So in other words, not just among Christians, but by Christians in society. Um, it's because classism, as we've defined it, is it's not a Christian thing, wherever it's found. Real Christians, in other words, don't assign value to people based on their socioeconomic Status, their race, their gender, their social clout. Um, Because to Christians, everyone's the same in terms of of their value as human beings. We don't classify people, classism. We don't classify people according to social or economic rank. Well, I mean, we shouldn't, uh, but we do. But that's what James is writing about. Um, and, and it's not that Christians, Bible-believing Christians, don't recognize distinctions of status, race, gender, social clout. I mean, if you're black, uh, you don't lose your blackness because you become a Christian, or if you're male, you don't lose your maleness, or if you're poor, you don't lose your poverty. But, but those things, the. We don't assign relative value to you as human based on those things. In other words, you you may or may not revel in your own ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status, but they don't make you uh, better or worse than anyone else. Uh, and so you you may identify as Asian or wealthy or female or male or whatever you are, But essentially, your identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, is derived from something a lot more substantial than those, you know, the kingdom of God. And uh, though James doesn't address each of those other categories of gender, ethnicity, etc., he is emphatic about what constitutes the essential value of a human And so he doesn't talk necessarily about gender or race, but what he says about the clash of Christianity with classism definitely applies to those those kinds of distinctions as well. As I said in the introduction, I'm talking about class in the sense of the system of ordering a society, you know, in which people are divided into sets based on status uh, perceived and it's, it's just not a Christ-like way to orient ourselves and others into these kinds of distinctions. Uh, the dictionary definition of classism is, is that uh, it's prejudice or discrimination based uh, or on the basis of social class. It, it includes individual attitudes, behaviors, systems or, of policies or, and practices that are set up to benefit the upper class at the expense of the lower class, end quote. And, you know, I should point out that the class- classlessness that James advocates is, is nothing like some sort of Marxist class warfare, you know, a war between the classes. In fact, uh, Marx's prescriptions for a classless society are nothing like the prescriptions of a classless Christianity. And in fact, uh, Marx advocated that the lower class rise up against the upper class, and but the clash, with with an H on the end, C L A S H. The clash that James spells out is between classism and Christianity, not between rich and poor. So anti-classism. Uh, is not that we're all supposed to have the same portfolio or same net worth. That's, that's more like Marxism, but that's not Christianity. What, this, what we're talking about and what James advocates is, uh, it, this means those with less should never feel like they are less than those, uh, than those who have more. And those with more should never feel like they are more. Uh, it means our identity, you know, and the way that we treat one another has zero to do with how much money we have in the bank or how much social clout we've we've been afforded in our society. So, in other words, you, you may or may not be part of the majority culture, but you have no right before God to entertain any sort of sense of superiority over the minority. So, this is no war between the classes it's really the annihilation of the of the classes between christians and by christians in their dealings with the world you know that said let, let's begin some commentary through the epistle and so we'll look at the the epistle with this clash in mind because i think i frankly think this is what james had in mind i think this was at the 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 top of his mind and so you know we try to study the bible for what it says and what it means not to make it mean what we want it to mean but you know for some of you this is how you've always interpreted this epistle to be honest the theme of justice and classlessness is not exactly how i've always seen it on the other hand if 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 it's a new way of seeing it to you then i hope you'll stick with me and you know, see if it seems right to you. Thomas Merton said, uh, quote, the mind that is the prisoner of conventional ideas and the will that is the captive of its own desire cannot accept the seeds of an unfamiliar truth and a supernatural desire. So in other words, so, you know, if what I say about the letter of James is not conventional to you or is not familiar truth to you, don't shut your mind to it. See if it doesn't make sense to you as as we go along. So, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds just underscore that for a minute trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything if any of you lacks wisdom you should ask god who gives generously to all without finding fault and it'll be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So I'd like to propose that when James talks about trials of many kinds, in in, uh, light of what he says next in verses 9 to 11, I believe that he has in mind a particular kind of trials, the kind that require perseverance, that are more akin to poverty. Now, just stick with me here, because it might sound like I'm trying to read into the scripture here, but because here he talks about many kinds of trials. Then in 9 to 11, he talks about those uh, believers in humble circumstances uh, should take pride in their high position and the rich should take pride in their humiliation. And then later uh, in the chapter, he goes back to the rich and poor thing. And so I'm not saying that these uh these are the only kinds of trials that he might be referring to, that the, the things that he says about persevering in trials and the testing of our faith and the maturity that comes as a result only has to do with this certain type of trials. But I think especially it's these kinds of trials that he has in his mind. My point is, though, that it's, it's most likely socioeconomic difficulties that are on the top of his mind you know, let, let's read on and see if we can't draw a line from trials uh, and tribulations and socioeconomics. So verses 9 to 11, and this is going to take a while to kind of unfold here, unpack, but verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises like, uh, with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich, they're going to fade away even, while, even while, while, they, while they go. Either he changed subject altogether from trials to socioeconomics, or he had the rich poor thing in mind when he was talking about the trials of many kinds. So I'm inclined, in light of the rest of the letter and its repeated reference to socioeconomics and and classlessness, to think that he had these things in mind. So so this is the first of five sections where James zooms in on on the class issue. Uh, These verses... And though they're, I have to admit they're a bit tough to interpret, they set the tone for the rest of what James has to say. So that said, these three v- verses do take a bit to unpack, so to bear with me on it. Believers, verse 9, he says, in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. I mean, you have to admit, that just seems... Uh, mutually contradictory. I mean, uh, it's upside down thinking, right? And, and like I said in the introduction, I think James learned this kind of upside down, frankly, right side up. Our world is the thing that's upside down. But from our vantage point as earthlings, uh, I think he learned these things from his half-brother Jesus, the king of the upside down kingdom, the master of the counterintuitive those in humble circumstances, the so-called, we will, we'll, let's use the phrase, lower class, in the world, they're viewed with disdain or with neglect, right? We, pe- people look down on people that are have humble circumstances. They're looked down on, and, and James says that in spite of the world's view of them, those people that are uh, of humble circumstances even though the world looks down on them, they should take pride that God loves them just the way they are. So from God's vantage point, they have a high position. And that's what James is saying. Their trial, going back to the early part of the chapter, their trial is their poverty and the low social station that comes with that poverty. And they overcome, not so much the by acquisition of wealth, is by enjoying the high position that God gives them, they overcome not just by getting more money, which they might or might not, but they overcome that by enjoying the high position that God views them in. The rich, on the other hand, James says, they come from a high social station, but at some point they're going to experience a humiliation. You know, their their trial is that. They're going to lose that high status at one point or another, and they're going to experience the lowliness that the poor experience on a routine basis. So rather than complain or strive to stay in their high position, James tells them to rejoice that in the privilege of being brought low. Again, I I know this is upside down here, but Jesus brings us into a kingdom that definitely is you know, uh, not like the way the world has taught us. You know, I mean, it's possible that James could be stating this as a general rule of thumb uh, about uh, the fleeting, you know, nature of, of riches, or he might be predicting a kind of a general economic downturn that's coming. Either way, the rich will often, if not always, experience a humiliation at one point or another, you know, because of the fleetingness of riches, whether it comes from a cataclysm or just by the, the way of the world. And, and so he tells them to rejoice in that loss, to take pride that God loves them so much that he can trust them, not only with their riches, but with the, the poverty that is coming and with the loss that's coming. I mean, you know, James wrote before AD 70, which is was when Jerusalem was destroyed by the by the Romans. And Jesus predicted it uh, in his Olivet discourse in in the synoptic gospels. So it's possible James may be echoing the words that he'd heard his half-brother Jesus uh, teach about about what was to come. And that that judgment on the Jews was a precursor to the final judgment predicted in Revelation 17 and 18 and if you read Revelation 18 just flip over there sometime and see what John predicts about this worldwide economic implosion and and I, and, and I think uh, Jesus all of that discourse kind of gives us a clue about what God thinks of the the babylonish powerful individuals and governments of the world but so it, it might sound like he's up on the poor and down on the rich. Um, some people even have said God is partial to the poor and that justice means that he's always on the side of the poor against the rich. But I don't think that's the case at all. Ron Sider says God, quote, God is particularly attentive to the poor and vulnerable. In the same way that firefighters uh, don't spend equal time at every house, they're partial to the the houses that are on fire, end quote. In other words, God doesn't love the poor any more than he does the rich, but he judges societies by what they do to the people at the bottom. And uh, he, he might, for these reasons, you know, be partial to the poor, but not biased. There's a difference between partial and biased you know, if he cares equally for everyone, how then is God, how is he partial to the poor? Well, Cider again uh, says, quote, in a family, loving parents don't provide equal tutorial time to a son struggling hard to scrape by with D's and a daughter easily making A's. Precisely, In order to be impartial and love both of their children equally, they devote extra time to helping the needier child. In situations, he gives the example like in apartheid in South Africa, in which some people oppress others, God's lack of bias doesn't mean neutrality, precisely because God loves all people equally. You know, later in the epistle, James indicates that some people who are wealthy are prone to violence, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, prone to fraud, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, and what he calls fattened living in chapter 5, verse 5. He says their gold and their silver, which rust, will witness against them at the judgment in chapter 5. Not that everybody that's rich is is all of those things, but, you know, Paul makes the same point when he says the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. You know, Mother Teresa, uh, when she saw the rich in luxurious uh, lifestyles, she called it the poverty of the rich. And and let me say it again. I'm not saying that we're all supposed to have the same portfolio or same net worth. I'm not saying... That we're all supposed to have equal amounts of of money and even social clout. It just means that those who have less never feel like they are less. And those who have more never feel like they are more. And that our identity is not tied to what we have or the position or the privilege that we have in this life. Does that make sense? I hope it does. But back to verse 9. He says, believers in humble circumstances, ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower. So the Christian from the lower class uh, is both economically low and spiritually high at the same time. In this world, the poor might get abused and disdained But they should dwell, the Christian should dwell, the poor Christian, the Christian who is lower on the socioeconomic ladder, should dwell on their high position as sons and daughters of God. Because in Christ, you're somebody, no matter how much money you have. And well-off Christians, James says, who are respected in this world should dwell on their unworthiness before God that is their low position as sinners, and remember. So, in other words, reminding themselves that compared to God, they're low. Of course, they're beloved by God, as beloved as any poor uh, uh, person. But uh, but their position in the world, they need to maybe take stock of the fact that they really aren't that fantastic. <laughs> I mean, doesn't this sound like a lot like Jesus in Luke 6, where he says, blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. In other words, in the world, some people get mostly disdain, and other people get mostly acclaim in our community. Uh, but in our Christian community, those distinctions, they go away. Christ does away with classism. So... Our identity in Christ humbles the elated and exalts the humbled. It erases our world-given identity, and, and it gives us a new one, a Jesus-shaped identity, a classless Christianity. And my guess is that most of you listening to, to this are Christians, and I, I would guess you're relatively well off by global standards. Uh, But you should remember that your actual identity is something completely other than what your portfolio says. In chapter 2, verse 5, James, just to jump over there for a second, he says, God has chosen the poor who are rich in faith. And, uh, you know, really throughout history, the well-off and powerful have not been the majority in the church you might look at your church and take exception to that but you should you should probably remember that your church is an exception to the global reality worldwide the simple and the poor are the majority in the church and so some are some are high born and some are, are low born but remember that that James didn't live in the land of opportunity in his time and in most of the developing countries today it would be near impossible to pull yourselves up here by your bootstraps as they say uh, more that's more the exception than the rule uh, versus our American dream world right where we can just you know uh, plow through and make something better of ourselves possibly in in our uh, in our particular society. But James, he brings the wealthy down and the poor up in terms of class, not necessarily in economics, but in dignity. In other words, I'm not saying that he says, now the poor, give them your money so, and so that everybody has an equal uh, portfolio, but in dignity, we're all the same. There, in other words, there's no caste system in Christianity not only among brothers, but, but among humans. So not only in the church, but by the church as we view the world. And again, I'll just say, it's not that we're supposed to all have the same net worth or earthly status. It means that those who with less never should feel that they are less and those with more should never feel like they are more. No such thing as you know, superiority in our ranks. Uh, he encourages the lowborn that it's actually a high position in the kingdom. And it, 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 the world's way is to assume a curse is on the poor and a blessing is on the rich. And, and sad to say, that's the way a lot of Christians feel as well. But James turns that upside down. He doesn't talk about the, that the well-off should treat the poor and, uh, a certain way until later, here, what he's trying to say is that this is how we should think of poverty versus wealth. He's talking, it's a mentality, not so much generosity yet. He's going to get to that. In the next chapter, he's going to talk about the way to treat people, poor people at the door of the church. You know, he talks about the rich guy versus the poor guy that show up, and then the usher gives the rich guy the best seat and the poor guy the bad seat. But He doesn't tell the rich guy to take off his rings and give them to the poor guy, and not that that would be a bad idea. Uh, Well, I mean, the rich guy would have to make his own choice to do that. It wouldn't be the usher doing it. I don't recommend that as as standard uh, protocol for ushers. But my point is that it's more about how we view poor versus rich and how we classify people, Um. Later, he's gonna talk about being generous for the poor and don't send your poor brother away with a, you know, be warmed and, and filled. Give them something, you know. But here, he begins with not so much what's in the bank but what's in your mind. Not about changing socioeconomic stations or making equality you know, of income, but that would be socialism. That's not what he's teaching. Uh, But of the five key passages on this topic in this epistle, at least two of them deal specifically with mindset, not bank account. Equal dignity of people, not not equal bank account balances. He's going to get around to right actions to take, but for now he's just talking about right thoughts and attitudes. So like Jesus, James just turned the usual way of thinking upside down. And neither James nor Jesus stand for class distinctions. They just don't, they won't put up with it. Christianity brings to the poor man a new sense of his own value, in other words. And he learns that he matters, she matters in the eyes of God. And, and the church should be using the eyes of God to look at one another. Uh, Tim Keller says, quote, it, it could happen that the slave... In the first century, was the minister of the congregation preaching and dispensing the sacrament, while the master was no more than a humble member of the church. In the church, the social distinction, distinctions of the world are obliterated, and, and none matters more than any other. End quote. I like the, uh, the contemporary English version. The way it translates verse nine, it says, "Any of God's people who are poor." should be glad that he, that God thinks so highly of them. But any of the rich should be glad when God makes them humble. And one of the uh, commentators uh, named Mayer says this, quote, as the despised poor learn self-respect, so the proud rich learn self-abasement. I mean, end quote. That's that's like a, that's a win-win, right? I mean, maybe James was even saying that both rich and poor are blessed and should thank God for the opportunities that their financial and social station affords them. The poor, for instance, they have the opportunity to be in a situation uh, to be lifted by God's perspective of them. And the well-off have the opportunity to be in a situation in the church to experience a lowering, a humbling. Both are benefited. The poor, you know, they're used to being on, on the bottom of the heap. They're brought up by Jesus. And the rich who are used to, in the world, being on the top of the heap, Jesus, what does he do? He brings them low. and But that's a blessing to both. I mean, think of it as kind of a vertical scale of 1 to 10, where the poor uh, who live at negative 10... In the eyes of the world, they're lifted in the eyes of God up to the center. And the rich, who are at positive 10, in the eyes of the world, they're lowered down to the center. Where now they're both rich and poor, one big happy family. Now, everything that's important in life, really important, they have in common. So, like I've said, neither James nor Jesus, you know, they don't solve classism by evening the economic playing field by making the rich poor and the poor richer you know you know james is going to prescribe the rich to give to the poor but that's going to come later but for now he's just dealing with castes a, you know a class system and his and his prescription is to deal with just the fundamental human dignity in in spite of their wealth or poverty and he just he just claims there's just no room in the mind of the Christian for high and low, just because we're all the same. So how opposite is this from the American value system, right? I mean, and frankly, which most evangelicals, I think, have bought into, uh, pun intended, bought into. But how how much of our Christianity is cultural instead of biblical, I wonder? how How deceived are we to consider that the successful, quote-unquote, are more important than the, than the strugglers. Not only you know, are riches fleeting, they are also flattering. They, they come and go, and, and they give a false impression about, about your identity. They say, you know what? If you're rich, you're important, and if you're poor, you're unimportant. But the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, it, ch- it changes all that. And it makes our economic station essentially irrelevant. So in other words, the no healed become automatically elevated to as high a position as the well healed. Jesus said in Luke, I think it's in Luke 12, a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. So wealth doesn't impress God and poverty doesn't repel him like it does many people. And James says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Which, by the way, that is a repeated theme throughout the epistle about humility versus pride. He talks about deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. He says, don't boast about it or deny the truth. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. You boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. That's kind of a theme in, in his mind. And I think it's particularly in, uh, relevant to the high born and low born, the, the wealthy and the poor. I mean, Paul taught the same value, of course. For instance, in Romans twelve sixteen, he says, be willing to associate with people of low position, that is, low social and economic position. One commentator on that verse in Romans says that this reference is to the most indigent and ignorant and least influential in the church. It is to them that the believer ought to feel the most drawn. Any sort of spiritual aristocracy or caste distinction within the church is evil, end quote. In other, in other words, there's no rich or poor to God, and it sh- there shouldn't be to us either. Back to Luke 6, where Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for, the, for yours is the kingdom of God. They're blessed in spite of their poverty. He wasn't promoting poverty or proposing a surefire way to escape it. He just merely meant that in spite of their poverty, they're blessed, even regardless of how the world looks at them. And uh, since in James' culture, there was little chance of climbing the economic ladder, right? He didn't say, work your way right out of your poverty, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that if you can, but his point was that whether rich or poor, you're beloved and you're blessed. And, uh, you know, we don't have a, a, a rigid caste system in the Western world, but we do have more of a subtle way of viewing the poor with a certain amount of disdain. And in the church as well, I'm sorry to say. I mean, we tend to see the poor as either lazy or sinful or both. Either they're not trying hard enough or, or they're just not obedient enough for God to bless them. Either way, their, their social and spiritual rank is, is tied to their economic position. And that's just, James took issue with that and said that in the kingdom of his you know, half-brother Jesus, the poor have as high a position as anyone. And when, when Jesus died and rose again, the poor and the rich and women and men and Jews and Gentiles, they all took on equal, equal status and should be treated with equal respect in the church. There's a subtle form of a prosperity theology uh, that the average believer has, I think. And, and the, the poor are demeaned and the well-off are deemed as blessed. God blesses with wealth and curses with poverty. Then those with wealth are more respected among us and those without are rejected among us. And James, just he just wasn't having it. He turned that upside down and reminded the poor in the hearing of the wealthy readers, by the way, that they are in the mind of God and should be in the minds of all their brothers and sisters as highly esteemed as their more comfortable fellow followers of Jesus. So the position of the highborn is as high as that of the lowborn. Christianity and classism, they clash. And, and, and you know, most preachers, and I'm a preacher, so I, I've, I've fallen prey to this, I think, Uh, the subtle form of this prosperity doctrine, but most preachers don't go as far as to say that God wants everybody to be rich and powerful, but at least (laughs) so many preachers say, yeah, but at least middle class, you know, homeowning, two-car driving, and kids in private school. That's, you know, God, you deserve that if you're a Christian. Well, that's that's just not how the scripture sees it, nor how James sees it he says to the rich that they should take pride in their humiliation and frankly you know this this word humiliation in the, in the greek language it's got this word picture here it means there's something swollen And it needs to be reduced, you know, like a, like a balloon. It needs to be, the air needs to be let out of it. And so he's almost saying, you know, you, you people have a big head and it needs to be, the air needs to be let out of your big head and take pride when your head can fit through the door. Kind of sounds like Jesus when he said, uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the rich should take pride in their low position because he'll pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It's, it's blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So let me just wrap this up. And, uh, and say that it's possible that James 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 was referring to a, you know a cataclysm horizon. I mean, probably, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, the city in which he served as as an apostle. He was kind of the pastor of the Jerusalem Church, and and uh, his take on how to view that cataclysm coming it is it's fascinating you know other preachers might have been preaching fear and flee right save your money you know invest it in gold get your funds out of the bank and run or you know give to, this this is more likely give to my ministry and you'll you'll avoid the tragedy but James he had a different take than that he said something like you know something bad is about to happen to the economy and it's it's going to be a blessing to you rich people i haven't I haven't heard very many preachers say that. But he, it's almost like he's saying, you know, you're about to have an opportunity to let go of your riches and see how important they were uh, all along. And, and that's, you know, what looks really bad is going to turn out really good for you. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's funny how when our our economy gets clobbered and we lose our businesses and our retirement funds and our properties go upside down, a lot of people just grieve and mourn about how hard it is, you know. But James seems to say, you know, there's a blessing here, don't you see it? You have the opportunity to, to be humbled by this. You know, in the Great Depression, people jumped out of windows. And I think, you know, if they had, you know, taken Jesus' perspective, they might have seen their opportunity to rejoice in that trial that they were going through. That's how James starts the epistle, by talking about rejoicing in your trials. And that's why I say that I think he was referring primarily, or at least at the top of the list of many kinds of trials, would be that sort of trial. Sometimes loss is actually gain, in other words. Okay, I know this has been a little bit beleaguering, but uh, next time we'll We'll start in verse 12 and, and explore those verses that follow. Let's go.